morning, church. Good morning. Good morning. Pray with me, will you? Father God, <clears throat> this morning, we want nothing more than to behold your glory in the face of Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come to this text, we, we do pray, God, that you would give us instruction in it. Lord, your, your word sanctifies us. The Lord Jesus says that we would be sanctified in the truth and that your word is the truth. So we do pray now, God, that you would help us to behold wondrous things out of your law. That we might be conformed into the image of your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would keep me free from error as I seek to teach this text. And we pray, God, that you would call the lost even to yourself now. And that in the preaching of your word, Lord, that you would convict us of sin, Lord, and that you would comfort those that are, that are down and despairing of heart. We ask it all in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning we continue our series in the book of Nehemiah. If you have not been with us long, it's our practice here to preach through books of the Bible at a time. Even those with long lists of very difficult names. We, uh, we do this so that we're exposed to the whole counsel of God. We're told that the scriptures are inspired by God and that they're given to us and they are profitable for us. We believe that. And so we make our way through these long lists of names and seek the Lord's guidance and what it is that the Spirit would teach us in these types of passages. So <clears throat> turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 11, and we're going to do just that this morning. Consider what the Lord would teach us from one of these such passages. If you were here with us last week, we saw in the narrative of Nehemiah that the revival of God's people moved them to recommit themselves to the keeping of God's law. They were particularly concerned with the, the recommitment to keep the laws concerning temple worship. Now, in this chapter, we come to find that God's desire is not only that the temple would be established and well-ordered, it's God's desire that the whole city of Jerusalem would be established and well-ordered. We've already seen the beginnings of this in the narrative of Nehemiah with the rebuilding of the city wall. Yet, while the city walls may be rebuilt... We've already seen from chapter 7 and verse 4 that the the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt since the time of the exile. This was not God's desire or intention for his holy city. So in this chapter, we find that an operation is undertaken to relocate one-tenth of the population of Israel to live there in Jerusalem. And as we we read about this, the the interesting thing is that the author still does not take our eyes off of the concerns of the temple. 
as we read about this relocation, we learn about all of those who were strategically placed in the city to make it well-ordered and, and to make it a, a functioning society. But, but the, the, the most thorough notes are made about those who had responsibilities at the temple. You'll notice that sandwiched between the, the details of the tribes of Judah and, and, and Benjamin, sandwiched between them and the rest of the Israelites, we get this lengthy observation recorded about the priests and the Levites. And as the author spends the bulk of his consideration there, we are meant to see this as, a, as central to the point that he's trying to make. So what then is that point? Well, we read here of an intentional investment of, of many people's lives in the holy city. But their engagement in the city is really an outgrowth of their desire for the advancement of the kingdom of God. We find in this passage that, that there's this, this interconnection between the citizenship of the people of God and their life-orienting, life-orienting commitment to God. In, in other words, the resettlement here is meant to teach us this. Wherever God places His people, they're to live intentionally concerning the advancement of His kingdom. Wherever God places His people, they are to live with intentionality concerning the advancement of His kingdom. That's, that's the point of the text. But in, in order to grasp that point, we, we really have to treat this text a, a bit like a diamond. We have to gaze at it from multiple angles to appreciate the, the fullness of its beauty. And so first, we, we, we must take a look at the historical reality of what transpired here in Nehemiah 11. And then we have to, to turn the diamond a bit to observe its application for our lives today. And then finally, we turn the diamond to behold how the truth of this text should leave us in anticipation of a reality that's not yet realized for the people of God. So with this in mind, we can begin our consideration of the historical reality of what transpires in the chapter before us. The historical reality before us, it opens up in verse 1. We're, we're given here in verse 1 the, the big picture of the project at hand. We're told first that the, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. And this is what you would expect. To, this is what you would expect, expect to find because, again, the temple was in Jerusalem. And the, the temple was the, the center around which all of life revolved for the people of God. Therefore, there was no more fitting place for the leaders of the people to dwell than in close proximity to the, the true hub of life for the people of God. They're in close proximity to the temple. And on a practical level, Jerusalem was the capital of Judea. As such, those that were tasked with providing oversight for the nation had to live close enough to have regular engagement with one another. And so we see that the, 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 the leaders lived there in Jerusalem. But then we're told the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. So in effort to repopulate the city, it, it was determined that one-tenth of the people of God should make their dwelling 
in the city. Now, the immediate question that we should be asking is, well, why was the population of Jerusalem so important? Why would God desire such a radical move to, to take place for the sake of this city? And the answer to that lies in considering what motivates God to do all that he does. Continually throughout the scriptures, friends, we're told that God does all that he does for his own glory. This is perhaps most clearly seen in Isaiah chapter 43 in verse 7, where God says of his people that they are those I created for my glory. And then the history of God's people displays this over and over again. Psalm 106 speaks of God's leading the Israelites out of Egypt, saying he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. Romans chapter 9 tells us why God raised up Pharaoh, that oppressor of the Israelites, to begin with. Romans 9 tells us, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Ezekiel chapter 20 tells us that he sustained Israel in their, in their desert rebellion for his glory. We read there, But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I brought them out. Again, from Isaiah 43, we understand that he even forgives sins for his own glory. God says there, I am he who blots out your transgression for my own sake. Friends, all that God does is for his own glory. And the scriptures tell us also that God protects and provides for Jerusalem for his own glory. God says of Jerusalem in 2 Kings chapter 19, For I will defend this city to save it for my own sake. And at the point where Nehemiah undertakes to repopulate the city of Jerusalem, God's motives haven't changed. The reason that the city should be repopulated is so that God would get glory. That he would be honored and magnified among his people. And that the surrounding nations would then see the supernatural protection and provision of the Lord for his people and they would marvel. It was so that God would get glory. Last week we saw that in the Old Testament era, the glory of God was made most clearly manifest at the temple because that's where the presence of God dwelt among His people. And so, it's only right for the city which housed the temple to be well-ordered and established. It was right for the people to be seen thriving there in close proximity to the presence of God. Because the, the advancement of the welfare of the city was the visible manifestation of the advancement of the kingdom of God, you see. Remember that. Under the old covenant structure, God had established Israel as a, a geopolitical kingdom. Israel was His kingdom. And any king is judged by the, the strength, the stability, and the, and the flourishing of His kingdom. But we have already seen from chapter 7 that at this point, the city was anything but strong and stable and flourishing. 
as such, the people here weren't jumping at the opportunity to move back to Jerusalem and live there. So according to verse 1, they cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in other towns. There was little commerce or, or industry within the city walls. The enemy threats to Jerusalem from surrounding nations loomed large. Jerusalem was, was much more likely to suffer an enemy attack than any of the outlying towns. And not to mention chapter 7, verse 4, again tells us that since the return of the exiles from Babylon, no houses had been rebuilt. So what we're looking at here is the reality that people were being asked to give up their homes to go and build a home. They're likely being asked to give up their trade for something different because you don't make a living the same way in the city that you do in the countryside. In fact, that was part of the sacrifice. There was a good living to be made in the agricultural country of Judea. And this is why the text says says that the people cast lots to determine who would give up their way of life and, and move to God's city. This isn't an assignment that everyone was eager to take on. And that's why verse 2 says that the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And we, we can't really tell if, if this blessing was on those who offered themselves voluntarily apart from the casting of lots, or if it's simply referring to the fact that when the lots were cast, men and women willingly accepted the will of the Lord in their life. Which, by the way, is a noteworthy thing here that this method of selecting these families was no more complex than the simple casting of lots. Roll of the dice. Flip of a coin is all it amounted to. But, but in this roll of the dice, the flipping of course, in this, in this casting of lots, there's a trust in the sovereignty of God to direct that outcome. And it really is a remarkable display of trust in the sovereignty of God to direct the outcome. I mean, if, if I'm picking up my life, if, if I'm forsaking my business, leaving my home, perhaps forsaking the safety of my family for the sake of the kingdom, well, okay, I mean, I can get behind that. Give it all for the sake of the kingdom, right? But you pull out a quarter and just say, heads you leave, tails you stay. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Surely there's a more strategic way to figure out if this is in God's will than the flip of a coin. But that's really uh, would be a display, uh, a display of a lack of faith on my part. Because the beautiful thing is here that, that in following this method of casting lots to determine who would live in Jerusalem, the people were acknowledging that it is God who builds his city. It's God who has created his people. It's God who calls his people. It's God who sustains His people. And it will be God, we see here, who rebuilds His holy city with the people that He chooses. 
entrusting themselves to the sovereign care of their God. We're not told of any clamoring against this situation. Only that there was a blessing for all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. And then the rest of the chapter here is devoted to the breakdown of the people that came to dwell in Jerusalem with their families. And what we find, again, is a peculiar focus on those who worked at the temple. But also, in God's great wisdom, we see here that the second greatest need for a thriving society was met. We're told in verse 6 that in the line of the tribe of Judah, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. From the tribe of Benjamin, verse 8 says there were 928 men of valor. Even among the priests, we read that there were 128 mighty men of valor. And there were those, according to verse 19, who kept watch at the gates that were 172 in number. You see, there were men that were needed in the city that could defend it against opposing forces and rival nations. If if any society is going to survive, much less thrive and flourish, there must be those who are willing to rise up and defend it. And in God's providence, you see, the lot fell to such men as these, valiant men. Undoubtedly, this was not their primary occupation. They likely made their living and provided for their families by some trade. They came to the city and they had to find a means of provision. Yet the manner in which they maintained their standard of living is not what's recorded in redemptive history. No, these, these men's names are set down in Holy Scripture because of their willingness and ability to rise up in the name of the king and fight for his kingdom. There was no lack of those who sought to do harm to Jerusalem. And, and, and by so doing, they might hope to bring shame to Israel's God. But in the face of such real, tangible threats, These men were ready to battle for the glory of their Lord. And while this speaks to the honor that that these men might have, it it really speaks much more to the the glory of their God. First of all, it, it was the sovereign hand of God to provide such men that were fit for the city in the casting of lots. But also, friends, History teaches us that one measure of a king is found in the willingness of his soldiers to forsake all for him. And the testimony of these men tell us of a great and glorious king who's worthy of all that they have to give. But as I've already said, the the author doesn't let our attention linger long apart from reconcentrating us on the activity of the temple. There was a great number of priests and Levites that made their home in the city. The priests, according to verse 12, were doing the work of the house of God. The priests were needed for making offerings and sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. 
The Levites tended, the text tells us, to the outside work of the house of God. This outside work would have included all the activities that were not directly related to this ministry of mediation between God and man that belonged only to the priests. The, the Levites' activities would have included teaching. And according to verse 17 and in verse 23, it would have involved leading in the praise of God. As we saw last week, under the arrangement of the Old Testament, the priestly service at the temple was central to the life of Israel. The worship of God is to be the heartbeat of the people of God. And according to the scriptures, that happened at the temple. That's why we find written of these temple singers in verse 23, that there was a command from the king concerning them and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. The, the details of this are really, frankly, unknown to us. Was this King David's command that was still standing? Or was this a command of King Artaxerxes? If it was Artaxerxes, then what would motivate him to give such provisions for these singers in the temple? The truth is, we don't have answers to these questions. But what we do know is that among the people of God, giving worship and praise to the Lord was too critical not to compensate. The intentional, thoughtful leading of the people of God in worship was something both necessary and non-negotiable. And in contemplation on this reality really helps us understand the connection between these temple activities and this wider project of reestablishing the city. Leading the choir and the people and the praises of God was a compensated position because it was necessary. Now that might be said of really any activity at the temple, that it was necessary, but focus is given here because there's perhaps no more clear example of the people of God glorifying God than when they come together and sing praises to God. Of of course, we magnify God among ourselves when we do this. We, We draw our eyes upward Toward him. We remember the great grace with which God has saved us. But moreover, it's one of the clearest things to the onlooking world, friends, when the people of God sing the praises of God. When we come in here and we carry out our activities, what's the thing that any thoughtful atheist would, would look at and, and see God being lifted up and made much of? If they peered in, and perhaps they watched us pray, well, they, they might think, oh, well, they're, they're just taking a moment of reflection. If they hear the preaching, they might think, oh, well, they're, you know, getting some moral instruction from an old book. But if they hear our singing, while they might think, yeah, it, it was pretty strange, they were singing to some entity that uh, they thought was in the room with them apparently but they would definitely have to say that well, whoever that being is that they're singing to that they think quite a lot of him and so it was with the nations that surrounded Judea in Nehemiah's day 
So the people of God must be led in the praise of God for the glory of God, both among themselves and for the onlooking world, you see. Now, we've considered here some of the historical reality of what's gone on in Nehemiah 11. But the question remains, really, how does this apply to the people of God today? How does this apply to me? And the answer to that is bound up, friends, in the reality that God is still building His kingdom. His kingdom doesn't advance today like it did in the 5th century B.C. In the New Testament era, Christ has now come and shed His blood on the cross for the forgiveness of sins. And we saw last week that He is the great and final fulfillment of all that the temple worship anticipated. No longer do do we center our worship of God around the temple. Likewise, no longer is His kingdom a geopolitical one. No longer is His kingdom tied to a landmass where His temple dwells. But just as sure as He was building His kingdom then, He is building it now. And and just as the people of God were called in that day to orient their lives around the worship of God and the advancement of His kingdom, so the people of God today are called to do the same. In fact, on this side of the cross, those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ and forgiven of their sin are all the more obligated to live a life devoted to the advancement of the kingdom of God. Remember the words of the Apostle Peter who laid this out plainly for us in 1 Peter chapter 1, saying, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look, Peter says. Peter goes on to say that that this wonderful grace, this this wondrous grace of the full revelation of the grace of God made known to sinners in the gospel, it is the motivation for every aspect of the Christian life. He says that this grace is what motivates a personal pursuit of holiness. Holiness. Peter goes on to say that the grace of the knowledge of the gospel is what informs the life of the church. He says in chapter 1, verse 22, this grace drives us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding Word of God. And in the next chapter, the same motivation of the revelation of the grace of God in the gospel, that same motivation, he says, is what anchors our commitment to the proclamation of the gospel. It's the experience of grace that leads us to proclaim the grace of God in the gospel. Because in the proclamation of the gospel, God is glorified and His kingdom is advanced. It's the gospel that tells us that God alone can save us from our helpless, sinful condition. It's it's the gospel alone that can change lives and make hardened, self-centered sinners into selfless saints. 
And friends, here's the key for the application of this text to our lives today. The church is the entity that God has made responsible for the proclamation of the gospel. Yes, every believer is tasked with carrying out the Great Commission. But remember in Matthew 16, after Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, how does Jesus respond? By saying that upon that gospel proclamation, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Friends, we saw from Nehemiah chapter 10 last week that according to the Bible, the church is the temple of God in the New Testament age. And as such, while the advancement of the kingdom of God in the Old Testament was really the overflow of the ministry of the temple, so now in the New Testament age, the advancement of the kingdom of God is the overflow of the ministry of the local church. And and to, to bring this text home for us, if that premise is true, which I'm arguing this morning that it is, If that premise is true, then there are a number of implications here for us in this text that we might make application to our life. There's a number of questions that it should prompt us to answer. First of all, is your decision to live where you live informed by how well it positions you to advance the gospel Is your decision to live where you live informed by how well it positions you to advance the kingdom of God through the gospel? And I don't just mean in central Arkansas. That is certainly a valid consideration. But, But I mean to get at something much more broad than even that. We see in the narrative of Nehemiah, God working revival in the hearts of His people and giving them a passion for His glory that drives them to recommit themselves to the worship of Him and a renewed commitment to pursue holiness. But the passion for the glory of God doesn't stop there. It moves one-tenth of them to accept this commission to uproot their lives, forsake their homes, and potentially the security of their family so that they can move to where God had determined they would be most useful in bringing Him glory. So by implication, we have to ask ourselves, have I been given a heart for the glory of God that would lead me to willingly forsake my home, my career, potentially the safety of my family, to perhaps move to a distant land, to be used of God for the advancement of His kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel and the building of churches. We have to be willing to ask ourselves such questions, friends. The task of gospel missions belongs to the church. And small as our church may be, we have to ask the question, does that task belong specifically to any in our midst? But this isn't the only implication for us to consider from the text. We must first consider where God would place us for the advancement of His kingdom. But we must also consider how God would use us where we are for the advancement of His kingdom. In other words... 
is how you engage your community informed by your call to advance the kingdom of God through the ministry of the local church. Are you engaging your community with the gospel, friends? Before anyone considers going across the globe for gospel proclamation, I want to know if they've gone across the street for gospel proclamation to their neighbor. Church, when you sit at a restaurant, or when you go to the grocery store, or to school, or to work, is the glory of God and the grace that you've received in Christ motivating you to find ways to proclaim the gospel in your community? It should. And if it's not, then the, the problem's not with the community that God's placed you in. The problem's with your heart. <laughs> And so our prayer should be that God would make us a people with hearts so captivated by His glory and grace that the gospel's not just an afterthought to us, but rather that the proclamation of the gospel would serve as the driving force for all of our interactions. Oh, may it be so, church. Now I said at the outset this morning that there were multiple angles that we had to consider this text from. <clears throat> and then in the final turn of the diamond of this text, we should, it, it should leave us in anticipation of a reality that is yet to be realized for the people of God. To that end, we need quickly to understand how this text has yet to find its ultimate fulfillment. Anytime we read from the Old Testament, we have to ask at least three questions. We have to ask first, what is the immediate fulfillment of this text? Second, then, we ask, is there a New Testament fulfillment of this text? And third, is there a reality alluded, here to, alluded to here that won't find fulfillment until the second coming of Christ? We've considered the first two of these questions already, and it's this third question that demands our attention for just a few moments now. And the simple answer is yes. There is a reality alluded to in this text that doesn't find fulfillment until the last day on the return of the Lord Jesus. In Nehemiah 11, and down through the history of God's people to this very day, God has been at work building His kingdom. And by His design, His work has been done through the cooperation of His people in their struggling and striving for His glory. But the Scriptures tell us of a day when that struggle and striving will cease. Revelation 21 tells us that the struggle to see and savor and share the glory of God will cease when God establishes the new heaven and new earth. Specifically, we're told there that this glorious time will come when God establishes a new Jerusalem, friends. In his apocalyptic vision, the Apostle John tells us, And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
for the former things have passed away. John speaks here of a, a glorious reality that we really can't quite comprehend. It's a reality to revel in and rejoice in. A reality that we, we, we find much comfort from. And church, it is that reality that God will fully and finally establish His kingdom that should fuel our gospel labors in this life. As much as our gospel labor may seem at times pointless or frustrating, and as much pain as there may be in the process of working to help people see the goodness and the glory of God, we can do that work only because we know that the advance, success, and establishment of the kingdom doesn't ultimately depend on us. The establishment of His kingdom depends on the sovereign Lord of the universe. And His glory will be made known on that day, friends. Because John tells us in Revelation 21 that the new Jerusalem has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives it light. His glory will be made known, friends. And so, like those in our text, Nehemiah 11, who, who, who relocated and labored for the glory of God in the city of Jerusalem, let us, church, labor for the kingdom and the glory of God with an eye toward that day when, when our labors will cease and He makes His eternal glory known in the new Jerusalem. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for that reality, God. That You create a people. You call a people. That You sustain Your people, Lord. And that You ultimately, God, will save Your people finally and fully. And that there will be a day when our gospel labors cease. That the, the pain and the sacrifice for your kingdom reaches its end because we will be with you in your kingdom, Lord God. I pray now, Lord, that, that you would make us a people who are motivated by that reality and that because of that reality, we're moved, Lord, to sacrifice much for that coming kingdom. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen.